This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today... Kara Sabin. She's a DC native and spent her childhood living in each letter of the DMV that is DC, Maryland, and Virginia. After receiving her MBA from Duke University, Kara took the marketing world by storm, working her way up the corporate ladder. She's worked with some of the biggest names in the American food and finance industries, and today is the CEO of Sundial Brands, a Unilever company. When I was a teenager, I had my the system is corrupt, tear it all down phase. I placed the blame squarely at the feet of hip-hop music like Wu-Tang Clan, Immortal Technique, and yes, even Outkast. People think Outkast is just, hey, yeah, but first off, that's just Andre 3000, who is indeed the greatest rapper of all time. Do not at me, because I will argue to the death, literally to the death. And from their debut album through Stankonia and beyond, Outkast was acutely aware of the ties that bind us and even prophetic on how technology slowly took over our lives in the 21st century. Biased opinions aside, once my eyes were open to the inequities of the world, I was angry and hated capitalism. To be honest, I still hate capitalism because it's responsible for the bulk of inflation and it's an economic theory that in order to function, every have requires a have-not. However, there has been a tonal shift in how we view capitalism on a micro level. Nobody wants to be a rock star anymore. They want to be entrepreneurs and CEOs. Anyone with a MacBook and a big enough ego is convinced they're coding the next Uber or Facebook, and they just might. College students are applying to and attending business school with the sole purpose of taking that top spot, making partner, and getting the corner office. My guest, Kara Sabin, was one of those college students who is now a bona fide chief executive officer. She may not be famous like other CEOs, but her portfolio and credentials speak for herself, as you'll soon find out. Kara was born in D.C. and lived there, as well as Maryland and Virginia, with her loving parents. As the only child, she, of course, received all their love and attention. But early in Kara's life, the cold, unflinching hand of the universe delivered a harsh lesson. Nothing lasts forever. I had the benefit of, you know, having both my parents, you know, pour into me and, and, you know, love on me. Um, And then when I was about nine, they got divorced. And so that was, you know, kind of disruptive as it can be to to children's lives. Um, But it really, I think, was my first lesson in resilience and how do you take something that you don't expect or a disappointment and, you know, turn that energy into something more positive. Yeah, um, my parents divorced around the same time. I think I was in like, um, I want to say fourth or fifth grade. So I definitely uh, understand that. Um, With that, I know for me, you know, honestly, that severely impacted like me emotionally and that trickled over into school. Did the same thing happen for you? You know, it didn't it didn't trickle into school, but it definitely impacted me emotionally, um, especially being an only child when you're in that kind of unit with two parents and a kid, you're like a, like a trio. And um, so it, it, it was like one leg of a stool was missing. And so it felt um, very disruptive. And so both of my parents saw emotionally what a struggle that was. And so I, I mentioned it was a first lesson in resilience. And I, <clears throat> from that, took some learnings around, you know, how to be independent and 
you know, it, it was really one of the drivers of my ambition and my focus was I felt like I didn't want to be in a position where the carpet was pulled out from under me and I wanted to always feel like I had a plan B. Um, and I think that's kind of how, you know, you cope, you you try to build some muscles to try to protect yourself from that, you know, happening to you or that feeling happening again. Yeah, absolutely. Um I guess I, I took the words right out of my mouth. Um, when I was growing up, I like obviously you didn't know it at the time when you're a kid because you don't really even have like the the language or the the, the intellect to kind right. of have that level of self awareness. But yeah, I looking back, I'm like I I I can't depend on anybody except myself. So I just need to do everything. And at times, not the the best trait in the world because sometimes I ended up being a very selfish person but uh this that's another story for another day um, no, but you know what it is it is um you know as you mature you relearn new things about yourself and in life and so you know what you're saying about not being able to depend on anyone i definitely went through that phase and then i've gone through a phase of trying to unlearn that behavior because obviously it's it's a trauma response it's not you know it, you're trying to survive but to feel fulfilled and joy and all the good things in life, you have to be open, you have to be vulnerable. So to unlearn that kind of protective instinct, um, you know, comes with the maturation process. I was, uh, when I was in therapy, that's what, the one thing that I learned like for me, cause I was, I was very like, like I'm, I'm an introverted person by nature, but I was just very like closed off emotionally. And it took me so long to figure out that, joy is a version of being vulnerable and that was something that i really hated so it took me so long to figure that out and i you know i apologize to my family and and my wife and everybody um it was it was never about them it was it was more um it was more about me uh but i completely agree and and just going on that journey of self exploration and and learning that you don't have to be defined by those traumatic experiences is what is it's like a gift that you give yourself in addition to you know sometimes forgiving the people uh some some things you know just can't be forgiven but at least for yourself to not keep drinking that poison and expecting somebody else to get sick. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah, no, that's deep. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so when you were in school, do you remember exhibiting any like leadership uh, qualities or qualities of an executive? Like, were you always the one in the friend group making the moves and stuff like that? Um, I, you know, I was a really good student and I was, fairly popular, you know, I was active, I was into a lot of different activities. And so I think from that sense of being a people connector, I, I probably, you know, started exhibiting some some early signs of leadership. But I also had, I kind of had a rebellious streak and not in a, you know, destructive doing, you know, bad things to bad people. But I, I, <laughs> I remember in high school, my senior year, our, you know, in final paper, we had had to do a paper on English literature, on authors, you know, English literature. And kind of at a silent protest, I did my paper on Richard Wright in the Harlem Renaissance because I just felt like I wanna I wanna do a paper on something that's interesting to me that I didn't feel like we were learning in school. I was learning it at home, but but not learning it in school. And I got a big fat F, but I was so proud of of doing that because I didn't, you know, I didn't follow the assignment. The assignment was English literature. Um, and, you know, I, I did what was important to me. So 
I think some effective leaders know how to push the boundaries. So I think, I think, you know, I started doing things like that, that I I can say now, but um, yeah, I've always had that streak in me. Since you lived in the D, the M and the V, where did you go to uh, high school? So I went to, I started high school at, in Wake, at Wakefield in Arlington, Virginia. And then we're getting real deep here, Jason. Then in 11th grade, I got a D in chemistry and I was, you know, always pretty much a straight A student. And my parents were like, oh my gosh, we have to, you know, do something radical. This is horrible. She got a bad grade. You know, we don't want her to fall down a slippery slope. And so I had to go move uh, in with my dad and my stepmother and my stepsister. So I transferred high schools and I graduated from West Springfield in Springfield, Virginia. So, um, that's where I went to school before college. And then uh, after college, I lived in the district most of the time before I, I came to New York. But when I first moved to the area, when I was six, uh, five or six, we lived in Maryland. My parents live in Maryland now, so I kind of claimed the whole area. When you mentioned college, you went to school at um, University of Virginia and you graduated from there. And then you enrolled in a MBA program at Duke University's uh, Fuqua School of Business. What was that experience like for you? It was a, it was a good experience. When I, um, when I went to UVA, I, I majored in Spanish and I was in college in the you know late 80s, early 90s. And it was around the time that we first were reading you know, stories about how population changes were going to come in the next, you know, few decades and how the Hispanic and Latino population was going to become the majority minority. And I was always kind of good in Spanish. And so I decided, you know, to major in it. And initially I I thought, you know, I wanted to be like a translator with the UN, you know, because I grew up in DC. So I was, you know, had these kind of dreams of that or working for the IMF or or something like that. Um, But I ended up uh, becoming an ESL instructor in Puerto Rico for a year. Um, So I I taught English in a town called Utuado. When I came back home, I was consulting for a couple of years, but I didn't have any like hardcore business skills. And so I felt like getting my MBA would would help put me on that trajectory. And um, in Fuqua, is a school there's there are a lot of people that go to uva undergrad and go to fuqua for for grad school for you know some reason um and i visited the the school um for a a a workshop for prospective applicants and i just i fell in love with the school i fell in love with the community with the people and it just felt like that's where i wanted to be I thought of a question while you were talking about um, like your career aspirations and, and why you uh, majored in Spanish when you went to University of Virginia. Do you feel like like in a roundabout way, living in the DMV area and specifically living in DC, like allowed you to dream big? Because not a lot of kids are like, I'm going to work for the International Monetary Fund. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because um, you would think in some sense, yes, but I came out of a generation where my parents were really concerned about how I was going to earn a living. And mm. there really wasn't a lot of room for um, grand, uh, creative, exploratory kinds of fields. Like it was like, you should be a lawyer, you should be a doctor, you should be a business person. So I actually 
didn't feel like I really had that freedom to dream because I felt like the mission was get a good job, mm. earn a good living, you got to support yourself. Um, you know, I think I think about my stepchildren, you know, a younger generation, and they have a bit more, I think, freedom to, you know, do and explore whatever path they want to explore because, you know, they're not, you know, two generations or one generation removed from, you know, really, really hard times. So um, living in in the D.C. area, you learn a lot about politics and government and law and things like that. And so I initially, when I went to UVA, I, I, I thought I wanted to be pre-law. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And then as I, you know, talked to friends that were in law school and most of them hated it and the <laughs> lawyers that I knew hated it, I was like, well, I don't want to, you know, spend three years doing that and then, you know, not even enjoy what I what I do. And so I, I turned to business almost as a as a default, as a way to, you know, have a have some professional skills. Once you uh, finished business school, your career is like dotted with like senior and director level positions at nationally recognized companies, you know, Shea Moisture, Kraft, um, L'Oreal, and also Capital One. And in my research, I learned that you were the uh, the uh, driving force behind the What's in Your Wallet campaign. Um, <laughs> how did that happen? Can you tell me that story? Yeah. After business school, I went to Kraft Foods and I was working in, in the New York area for a couple of years. And then I had to move back home to the D.C. area um, for, for personal reasons. And so when I was looking for a place to work, Capital One as a company was only seven years old at the time. And they were hiring people with branding and marketing experience because they wanted to put the Capital One brand on the map. And, you know, in, in full honesty, you know, I wasn't passionate about financial services, but I was passionate about building brands and building iconic brands. And so the opportunity that I had in, you know, I was uh, five years out of business school at the time. I did a lot of uh, market research. And so what the insight was at the time was that in the financial services area arena, there's tons of iconic you know, businesses, American Express, and then you have issuers like Visa and MasterCard who have these, you know, have incredible brand awareness. But for most people at that time, if you ask them, what is the brand of the credit card that you have in your wallet, they would say Visa, MasterCard, or American Express. They wouldn't say Capital One or Chase or, or what have you. And mm -hmm. so the insight was, how do we turn the industry on its head by dramatizing this David and Goliath nature of, you know, Capital One is David and the industry and all, all the, you know, Titans are, are Goliath. Mm -hmm. And so um, that tag tagline, what's in your wallet, we wanted to end on a call to action. And it was a literal call to action, like check what's in your wallet. What card oh, do you have? Like, okay. what is the brand of the card that you have? And um, the ad at the time, I think it was DDB that that did the, the first creative. It was like this huge production where there were pirates and Visigoths and they were dramatizing, you know, what, what the industry was like. Um, but all of it was really grounded in, in market research and, you know, how could we differentiate ourselves at the time uh, from, from everyone else? Hmm. So was that um, campaign one of those instances where you as like, a thought leader had to be like, no, we're not going to go in the pirate direction. We're going to go in this direction because that's like too much. 
No, I did not have that kind of pull. I was just honestly lucky to be in the room and to be able to be part of the process. Um, I do remember at the time feeling like, wow, we're really spending a lot of money on this commercial. (laughs) 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 But I had come from, you know, traditional consumer packaged goods. So I hadn't been in, in financial services where, you know, the budgets are a bit bigger. We'll be right back after a quick break, and when we return, I continue my conversation with Kara Sabin, CEO of Sundial Brands. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, and before the break, my guest Kara Sabin spoke of her time at the Fuqua School of Business and her work on Capital One's iconic What's in Your Wallet campaign. As we continue our conversation, Kara talks about her current life as CEO for Sundial Brands, how she handled the Shea Moisture Crisis of 2019, and her role at Madam by CJW, the hair care line honoring Madam CJ Walker. Currently today, you are the CEO of Sundial Brands and, and President of Beauty and Well-Being at Unilever in North America. And for those who don't know, Unilever is um, a multinational corporation um, and a lot of brands that you know and love are owned by Unilever, like Ben and Jerry's. My my wife loves their ice cream. I do too. <laughs> um, as the CEO and president, and now somebody who does have that kind of pull, how do you handle missteps or difficult situations at like an executive, like C-suite level? It's a good question. Um, I think it was this. It was uh, summer of 2020. After the murder of George Floyd, if you remember, obviously you remember that horrible incident, but if you also remember, that's when the call and the call to action to support black owned businesses really started to take much more traction than it had in the past. I remember waking up one morning and Shea Moisture was trending on Twitter and it was Uh trending boycott Shea Moisture. And like I hadn't even had my coffee yet. And I'm like, oh boy, what, what is this about? hundreds thousands of consumers basically saying Shea Moisture is owned is not black owned they're being deceptive they're they're marketing to black consumers and and you don't really know that they're they're no no longer black owned i felt like that was a crisis moment that i needed to say something cuz i couldn't just let that go but i had to be careful with what i said and how i said it because of the position that i hold And the approach that I took, which is the approach that I tend to take if I'm in that kind of a situation is I just lean on my authenticity because I feel like my authenticity can't be right or wrong. It just is what it is. And so I was, you know, my, I was thinking I just have to respond in a really authentic way. And so I, I made a post on my, you know, personal uh, Instagram account and the brand's account picked that up and then, you know, LinkedIn picked it up and it just started to, you know, take, take traction. And what I, what I said in, in the post was I was trying to, I was trying to land a couple of points. One was as a leader of, of Shea Moisture, me and, and my team feel this incredible responsibility to carry on the legacy of, of Richelieu Dennis and, and his family and the Dennis family. You know, they poured 30 years of their lives into building this business. Mm-hmm. And now we're the stewards of this business and this legacy. And I felt like the boycott Shea Moisture was just not, um, it just was myopic. And I felt like they didn't really understand the journey that the business had been on and didn't understand that inside of our company, 
even though we are uh, a part of, of Unilever, we are black led in a way that many businesses are, are not. And, you know, majority female led, just a very diverse leadership team. And so I wanted to give voice to that nuance because I feel like in social media, it, there's no room for nuance. It's like, who can say the zippiest thing and get, you know, the most likes and ret- retweets. And I just wanted to inject some authenticity and realism and, you know, just speak on behalf of, of, of our founders, on behalf of my team that works so hard. And, um, and so that, you know, that's how I handled it. And I remember I was talking to um, a member of, of the family and he said, you know, so how, how do you think that went? And the way he asked me that question, it made me realize I did have a choice in how to respond to that. And my response was, I have to address this. There's no way they're going to you know, talk about my business or my team. Yeah. But um, now that I have a bit more experience being a leader and, you know, the ups and downs of social media, I probably still would have responded that way. But um, I still I do believe that, you know, um, social media can sometimes be. Uh, just not the best place to have those kinds of conversations. So all that to say that, um, you know, that was an incident where I felt it really could have gone left. And, you know, we, we continue to try to have this conversation around black owned versus black founded versus black led. And what's most important to us is what is the impact that we're making? When you were in that, that crisis mode and you decided that you were going to make a post on your personal page how many times did you write and then like delete something before you're like look i just got to settle on something right it was if i can i tell you my adrenaline was just that whole day (laughs) i i just whatever meetings i had i i don't even know if i canceled them i just was like i have to focus on this and i took pen to paper and i just poured my heart out and then I think the next thing I did is I, you know, called up um, two of my leadership team members and I, you know, I wanted them to look at it. And my initial draft is basically what was posted. Like I just, I, I just wanted to keep it real and I didn't want to, you know, doctor it up too much. And so um, I didn't rewrite it. A lot of times there's actually, there's like a grammatical error if you go and read it which I'm like, ooh, I should have should have said something different there. But um, but yeah, that's it. I didn't really do a lot of rewriting. So we're going to switch now from um, Shea Moister to uh, Madam by, what is it? MCJW. Madam CJ Yeah, there you go. So a few weeks ago, I interviewed the wonderful Miss Alelia Bundles about her contribution to the brand as the brand historian. What is your involvement with the brand as CEO for the company that owns the brand? Yeah, isn't Alelia wonderful? I mean, her spirit. She's amazing. She's amazing. She's just amazing. Um, It was really important to me that she was integrally involved in, in, in the development of that line. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old school, so I, I give respect and, and, and deference to, you know, this is her family. So I felt like I couldn't, you know, come in as this marketing person and pretend to know everything about Madam CJ Walker, even though I, I can't remember a time that I didn't know who Madam CJ Walker was. Um, but I felt it was really important that she be involved every step a- a- along the way. And she was game. Like she, you know, sent us historical things 
as we were, you know, thinking about the packaging and the formulas and the fragrance, she was, you know, testing things out like we were. Um, and then even when we, we shot the campaign, we initially were going to have her be a part of it. And then we had some, um, um, uh, you know, talent that was part of the shoot. And then like in the moment, I think it was the day before the shoot, we decided maybe we should put the team that's been working on this launch in that scene versus having models be a part of that scene. And so we recreated that iconic photo in front of the storefront uh, with Madam CJ Walker and her Walker agents. And, um, you know, Lelia did some TikTok videos for us and she's dancing. And so it was just, it was fun to have, um, you know, this, this focus that we wanted to honor the legacy of Madam CJ Walker. We have her great, great granddaughter here at the table with us helping, you know, build this. And so just everyone that worked on that project, it was a highlight. It was an absolute highlight. Mm. And do you have any, uh, any favorite products from the Madam line? I, I do. So if you know the original line, there's a balm and a tin that's the, you know, iconic product. And so we launched a, a balm to oil that's a nod to that product. And so that that's probably my favorite product. What do you hope the future of hair care holds for black women? So like black, um, you know, creators or entrepreneurs or, or black led businesses. What, what do you hope the, the future holds? You know, I... I hope the future holds, you know, that we can reach a point where our hair isn't this, you know, second entity. I feel like sometimes as, as a black woman, you know, if I'm wearing my hair like I am today and I enter a room, I know that all eyes may be on my hair before they're on who I am as a person. And my hair is making a statement, even if I'm not, you know, trying to make a statement and, you know, I think there's a lot of wonderful work that, that um, our Dev brand has done with the Crown Coalition and, and, and standing up the Crown Act, which is, you know, ending hair discrimination. And it's uh, passed in 19 states at this point. And so, you know, there's work that we're trying to um, lead in terms of ending hair discrimination. So legally, there's protections. But just even how, 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 how you feel, uh, you know, I, I remember... Um, as I was, you know, going up for this promotion that I recently got a friend of mine, I had my, I had knotless braids in and a friend of mine was like, are you going to take your braids out? Cause you know, now you're, you're going for this big job. And I was like, no, I'm going to leave them in. And that's the culture that we have is, you know, our, our hair is an expression of, of who we are and our identity and our creativity and our ancestry. And so it is very important, but I also hope for a future where, it's not a big deal. It's it's just my hair. So we're going to wrap up here. My last question um, that I ask all my guests, what's coming up next for you? Um, what's coming up next for Madam by uh, Madam CJ Walker and uh, for Sundial Brands? Yeah. Um, so what's coming up is uh, most immediately is a lot of travel. <laughs> so I feel like now that that things have opened up, uh, business travel is back, you know, full speed. So there's a lot of travel coming up, but, um, in terms of, of Sundial, so Shea Moisture and, and Madam, um, we're just, uh, we're continuing to do the work that we do in terms of, um, deepening our, our impact and our mission. 
we will be publishing our first ever impact report. So um, as a brand, there's a lot of work that we've done that we don't speak about, but we feel like we do need to speak about it so people understand and join us in the impact that we're, we're trying to make. We're hoping to inspire other businesses to, um, you know, to, to be alongside us. And then on the rest of my portfolio, um, you know, each, each brand is special. And so uh, this is the time of year that we're building those brand plans for, for next year. So more to come. Maybe I can come back and see you next year when, when uh, I can share more information. Oh, for sure, for sure. Also, if, if you guys ever are going to invest in men's hair care products, let me know. I'm going to be turning 33. I need to find a way to have my beard connect. If you have any secrets, please let me know. Is it still not connecting? No, not really. Like, I, I, the hair is starting to grow down this way. And I'm like, I tell my barber not to cut it. And then he cuts it. And I'm, I'm like, are you trying to make me upset, man? Come on. Like, just 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 work with me here okay well uh kara Saban, thank you so much for the opportunity to sit down and talk with you thank you jason it was a pleasure that was kara Saban, ceo of sundial brands find her on ig at kara underscore Saban. learn more about sundial brands at unilever.com Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V, and distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color drop the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate five stars and leave a review. Learn more about Local Color at wypr.org.